Welcome to the Monogamous Marriage Podcast. We're Kate and Liam, married bisexuals a decade into our non-monogamous journey. We've been having sex with our friends for 10 years, and we're still madly in love with each other. We're the authors of the Monogamous Marriage blog, where we've been overthinking sex and love since 2016. This podcast is the place where we process our sexual adventures in real time. We are not experts, and nothing we say should be mistaken for professional advice. This show contains mature language and sexual content, so if you're under 18, it isn't for you. But if you're a fellow overthinker and you're not freaked out by unfiltered conversation, you're going to feel right at home. Before we get started with this episode of the Monogamous Marriage Podcast, we want to announce something that we're very excited about. As you know, there is a lot of lifestyle travel around. We are active, enthusiastic participants in the Room 77 Hotel Takeovers, in Naughty Jim's Adventure Travel, and Libertine's Podcast of Palooza events. But we found as we were planning our travel for 2023 that there was something missing, and that was a European option with something of a cultural bent. So we've decided to establish Sapio Tours, and our first trip is to the island of Crete in June of 2023. That's right. It'll be June 9th to 16th on the biggest of the Greek islands, Crete. It's a rugged and beautiful island that we've visited before. I've actually written a book about its amazing history. And so we felt kind of uniquely qualified to offer this trip to our lifestyle friends. So we're going to be taking over a 12-room resort. We're going to be touring the cities of the area, the Samaria Gorge, the major archaeological sites, all in the context of a lifestyle vacation and all the good things that involves. We have already sold nine of our 12 suites. There are only three left and prices start at $4,100 US for seven nights, and that includes chef-prepared meals, transportation to and from the airports and to all of our excursions, entry to our excursions, and all the sexy fun you can have with 24 sapiosexual swingers. If you're curious, you can watch the YouTube video at the link in the show notes. And if after that you're thinking this could really be for us, or you want to get on the list for future trips, you can reach out to us at themonogamishmarriage at gmail.com, and we'll start to discuss the logistics of having you join us. So now let's get into this month's interview. Oh yeah, there's a podcast. Right. I have the privilege of sitting down with Rachel Krantz, virtually who is a journalist and one of the founding editors of Bustle, where she served as senior features editor for three years. Her work has been featured on NPR, The Guardian, Vox, Vice, and many other outlets. She's the recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Peabody Award for her work as an investigative reporter with YR Media. She hosts the podcast Help Existing with Rachel Krantz, and she recently published the book Open, which is what we're going to talk to her about today. I am thrilled to bring this conversation to you. And I am thrilled that we're doing that, too, because I listened to this interview that we're about to share with our listeners, and I was blown away by the quality of the conversation to hear so many of the things that we have discussed over the last little while from a outsider's perspective was really fascinating. And, and sweetie, I think you did a great job of really exploring the issues with her in a non-obvious way, but really digging into the feelings and perceptions of someone working their way through their own non-monogamous journey. Well, thank you, babe. So without further ado, 
Here is that conversation. Okay. With us today, we have Rachel Krantz, and she is the author of the book Open. And we are just thrilled to have her on the show. I'm totally fangirling here as a big bookworm and a bibliophile. I'm just thrilled to have our first author on the show. So welcome, Rachel, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. So your book, Open, reads kind of like a cautionary tale about the ways that open relationships can go wrong. So for the people in our audience who haven't had a chance to read it yet, can you give us a quick overview of what the book covers? Sure. Yeah. So the book is a reported memoir, the story of about four years in my life from 2015 to 2019 when I got into my first open relationship, which was also my first dom-sub relationship. Although, as you see in the book, part of the issue is we didn't exactly have any clear communication or boundaries around that. And eventually, it was also my first um, emotionally abusive relationship. So it's kind of all those things at once. The story of how I begin exploring non-monogamy in all these fun ways at parties, threesomes, dating independently, swingers resorts, coming into my queerness and really opening up in so many ways at the same time that it's the story of I'm getting increasingly bogged down in this primary relationship and kind of slowly losing trust in my own judgment or sanity because there was so much gaslighting. So it's kind of the story of how both those things can be true at the same time. You know, you can be in situations where on the one hand, you're feeling increasingly liberated. On the other, you know, something is very wrong. And I just wanted to show a depiction of that in a non-monogamous context. It was fascinating because when I first started reading it, I I could tell where it was going. Like this was not going to be a happy ending, right? (laughs) This was not going to be a great story about non-monogamy. And I was cautious because I thought, oh no, here we go. We're putting this out into the world that non-monogamy is toxic and women are just being manipulated into doing this thing they don't want to do by men. And I I was worried that, you know, this is going to be portrayed in the way everyone from the outside expects non-monogamy functions. But as you got further into the book and the toxicity seemed to increase, you still finished the relationship with a belief that non-monogamy was for you. And I was kind of surprised because most people would come away from this experience feeling like, well, I learned my lesson. I am not doing that shit again. So what was it that even in the midst of this, you found promising? Yeah, well, one of the reasons is, you know, you do meet other people like a group of swingers in the book who are all non-monogamous and they seemed very happy and just getting to know them and really interviewing them and talking with them. Like these were some of the healthiest long-term relationships I'd seen. And in terms of friends I have who are non-monogamous, like Aisha in the book also just really admired the way non-monogamy worked for them in their lives. So I had other examples of people it was working in a healthy and sustainable way for. And I was kind of learning the difference of, oh, okay, maybe it has less to do with which relationship model you choose and more about how do you communicate and is there a foundation of secure attachment and that there's going to be compromises either way, um, monogamy or non-monogamy. But I think going on that journey and just seeing, wow, I'm into way more stuff than I thought I was and just seeing kind of how much I enjoyed being given permission to explore. 
I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I felt like I still have so much to discover. And also coming into owning my own bisexuality, I didn't, I didn't want to have to choose in the future and close off any of those experiences. So I felt it was also just kind of natural when I started dating someone again, um, which I kind of depict. I found I was craving to reconnect with multiple people at once. And it was just a different starting point of my being able to say, wait a second, it's not necessarily that in exchange for emotional commitment or some sense of stability that I have to offer monogamy, that there are people who can provide both a sense of stability and security and allow you to have those freedoms. You touched on several things I want to ask you about. So first of all, I was listening to your audiobook in the gym, and I'm in there lifting very heavy weights, sort of. And, <laughs> and then I hear you talking about people I know. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh my God, the Desire Crew is my crew. These are my people. Yeah. I almost dropped the weights on my feet. It was really exciting to hear you talk about Nate and Liv and Amy and Rory, you call her Amalia in the book, because these are people I know really well. I've spent weeks with them at Desire too. So as I was listening to you talk about sitting on the big round bed at Desire, I'm like, I've sat on those bed with the- <laughs> those people. <laughs> so that was really fun because I had no idea in advance that they were going to appear in the book. And they, they actually played a significant role in the in the second half of the story. And I liked that you included them as examples of good swingers. <laughs> because, you know, the temptation is to portray swingers as these like down to fuck, hedonistic, greedy people. And I like that you that you found and connected with these people who I love so much and know that like this is really uh, the representation of the world I'm familiar with that I, I want to be out in the world. So I was glad that they were included. And uh, I was super excited to hear like, they live. <laughs> Amazing. They're coming. They're coming to my house next month. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I was really glad that that you included that, you know, that representation of a healthy way to do this, that it's not all just casual encounters or full-on non-hierarchical polyamory, that there are these middle grounds where people can have long-term relationships and caring, loving, respectful connections. Mm -hmm. So thank you for including them. The second thing was you talked about your bisexuality. And that's something that I've found the lifestyle has really helped both me and my husband with. So we got started with this because I had an encounter with my best friend in my previous marriage. And I was just like, what the hell is happening? And how can I get more of this? Mm. So when I started my relationship with my current husband, I said, this has got to be part of it. I've just discovered I'm bisexual and I don't want to give that up. And I'm not even sure how this will look going forward, but I want to have both. So the lifestyle was a way for me to have everything. And for my husband, he didn't even really realize he was bisexual before. He would never have had the opportunity to to understand that about himself or to explore it had we not gotten into non-monogamy. So for both of us, it's been a place where we can have everything. That's um, great. Yeah. And that's great to so, hear that he feels he can explore his bisexuality because one of the things I mentioned in the book is that I found in a lot of lifestyle spaces that it was very normalized that women would play with other women 
women, but I didn't see men playing with other men. And I have heard that's changing. So it's really good to hear that those spaces were also for him too, because I think it's just very unfair. And and like I depict in the book, the more I was out about being non-monogamous, the more suddenly I realized I knew bisexual men, whereas before I didn't. They felt comfortable being out to me because I was now also, I guess, identifying as bisexual myself, but also somehow deviant by being non-monogamous. And I think that a lot of the journey in the book is about my own internalized biphobia and also how I was part of the problem when it came to men of, you know, in my early 20s, I think I would swipe left on bi men being like, oh, no, that's not for me. And now I'm realizing that the the two men I've dated who are some of the most like viscerally sexy to me turned out to be bi men and that you wouldn't ever guess, quote unquote, and not that it would be a bad thing if you would guess, but just that I think I had equated being bisexual with femininity. And I like femininity, but I tend to really gravitate in men towards more of those masculine vibes. And I saw just how how misguided that was, um, how sometimes those those men were some of the most uh, rugged. <laughs> so, right. yeah. Well, it takes a lot of confidence mm-hmm. to overcome that social conditioning. And it's interesting that the more my husband has been open and honest about his bisexuality, the more people who we know, who have we've known for years and would never have guessed they had any inclination in that direction, have come to him quietly and said, so um, <laughs> do you want to try some shit with me? That's great. Um, because, because they just need the opening, right? Mm-hmm. They need the permission. So yeah, so I was wondering, do you feel like non-monogamy was instrumental in bringing out your queerness? Or do you feel like that was always there in a way that would have emerged regardless? What do you think? Yeah, I think the latter. You know, I'd been feeling these feelings since I can remember. That was never the storyline of the woman ends up with another woman at the end was not a thing in the 90s. And I think I'm very susceptible to fairy tales and stories. And because I feel such a strong attraction to men as well, it was easy to just kind of go with that and think that was supposed to be the best story. That's the way it goes. And, you know, the kind of narrative it seeped in of like, oh, well, all women are kind of fluid and you know it's hot for women to make out with other girls and so I would just kind of say like oh I probably have just internalized porn culture but I would have crushes on on women and people who turned out to later come out as trans and and non-binary and found that within the queer community itself which I always had around me that those friends and some of those people were also the ones unknowingly perhaps gatekeeping or diminishing my feelings because they'd just seen me date cis men and were like, yeah, well, you know, and so it wasn't taken seriously. Bisexuality, I think there was a lot less understanding around the fact that this is a real thing and that the diminishing of it, erasure of it has real consequences. And in researching the book, I was shocked to find out that bisexual women have the highest rate of sexual assault more than queer or straight women, even higher rate than trans women for cis bisexual women, and the highest rate of mental illness, drug abuse. Queer women in general are twice as likely to have an eating disorder. So you see all of that mirrored in my story, right? I'm like struggling with all those things. And it was pretty 
shocking to realize how even as I'm detailing in the story, dating um, a woman and my first experiences with that, like I still had a lot of trouble until really the book came out and pretty recently owning the label bisexual that I was still diminishing it. You know, it's hard to untangle, but I do think some of it is that I I continue to try and it's just a lot harder to find women who want to date me than it is men. And I also tend to enjoy being a little more on the submissive side and primary or or long-term relationships or kind of being pursued, although I'm open to pursuing, but I think that sometimes that lends itself towards the more gender normative man pursues woman dynamic. And just when I'm on the apps, it's just, you know, 90% men messaging me or more and the women I message don't message back. So that's continued to be a struggle. Whereas those lifestyle spaces, it was so liberating because it was so easy. Right. You know, I didn't have to get through the messages online or, or meet someone in real life like I did with Miranda. But for me, I also think that's not quite enough. I want to have relationships with people besides cis men. And I, I have faith that I will. It's just, it's definitely, it gives me sympathy for men who date women of like, yeah, it's definitely a lot harder <laughs> to like, yeah, have to play your cards right. Women are women are hard to impress. And uh, I think when you're a woman yourself, you kind of, you know that. So it can be intimidating. Right. We wrote an article about a year and a half ago about our, like our fuck it list, right? Like what's the one thing we haven't done yet that we want to do? And I realized in writing that, that what I really wanted was to have a romantic relationship with a woman. And it hit me hard when I first said that when I first wrote it down, that that was a really powerful desire that I hadn't really acknowledged because it didn't fit within the framework of our friends with benefits swinger kind of dynamic. And I think I just kind of manifested this and blogged about it. And within a few months, I found a woman who is the most amazing, most beautiful, most like jaw dropping um, human I've ever met besides my husband. Um, (laughs) And yes, she just she came into my life. But the idea of going online and setting up a profile and trying to find a woman just sounded so onerous to me. I thought, I don't know if I can do that. I get access to a lot of a lot of pussy in the lifestyle. <laughs> and I'll let that be enough for now. And then just see what ha- see what happens organically. And it was kind of magical the way it happened. So, so did you meet her through the lifestyle or through just everyday life? I did through the lifestyle. Yes. She and her okay, husband cool. are, are swingers and we met at an event. That's awesome. Oh, that, that gives yeah. me hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which I guess is a, is a good segue into one of the parts of the book. Well, a, a huge thread throughout the book is the idea of jealousy and, you know, the fears and insecurities that come with this lifestyle and how sometimes there's this cognitive dissonance between who we want to be, you know, our aspirational confident selves, and then who we actually find ourselves being in these moments of insecurity and fear. And you described a particularly difficult night in the book when you were with a sexual partner who you called Mo, and you were kind of acting out because your partner Adam was out on a date. And you broke one of the cardinal rules of your relationship. You actually had sex with Mo in your bed. And as I was reading this, I felt like, 
well, that's a little bit hypocritical of you. Like you're upset that Mm -hmm. Adam is out on a date, but here you are also on a date (laughs) and feeling like you've been betrayed. But I, I also really understood that dissonance because, you know, you understand yourself well, you you understand your feelings and your motivations, but it's hard, especially when you're insecurely attached to believe your partner's motivations and to believe their attraction to you is strong enough to to bring them back. So this is something I've been struggling with a lot lately. For 10 years in the lifestyle, I felt like I'm not a jealous person. And then my husband started dating separately and oh shit, I'm such a jealous person all of a sudden. Um, So I just... I wonder how you account for that kind of hypocritical cognitive dissonance that happens mm-hmm. um, to us, to people in the lifestyle. I don't want to say it's just a female problem, mm-hmm. but how do you think about that? How do you process that? Well, I think one way to think about it is that there's what you believe and then there's like what is activated. So There's maybe what you logically believe, and then there's what your past trauma and fight or flight response believes. And I think a lot of the times with jealousy, people really get into a sort of fight or flight place because core attachment wounds, abandonment wounds, fear of being rejected, not enough unlovable, it gets activated. And I think that's something you see me feeling compelled by throughout the book of like, wow, I can just sense how if I could, if I could overcome this, I'd be kind of so powerful because I just wouldn't, I'm basically placing myself over and over in this situation that is the most challenging thing for my ego. It's just triggering all my shit. And so I wanted to keep pushing it, but at the same time, I was very insecurely attached to Adam for several reasons. One, I think it was my first non-monogamous relationship and I would have just struggled. But another was that it was this dumb sub-dynamic and he was pushing the non-monogamy and this was very understood of like, I have to do this. And even though I had the ability to kind of hit pause where you see me doing that a few times, it was still understood that like that was a short time offer. And so I think I didn't really feel like I could say no or stop really. And that is a very difficult place to feel secure from. That on top of the fact that my jealousy was viewed by him as a irrational, immature emotion that needed to be trained out of me. So rather than holding it with compassion or trying to understand what could I do that would make this better for you, it was usually like, why are you being so immature and irrational? And if you just looked at things logically, you'd see that nothing has changed, which was absurd. So a kind of diminishment of my feelings that was at the beginning of the gaslight, nothing has changed, even though he's, you know, started dating independently and sleeping with other women and has another girlfriend, but he refuses to call her even a girlfriend to me. So I think there was just a lot of like not feeling seen or acknowledged and that fueled a further shame of like, not only am I feeling jealous, but I shouldn't be feeling jealous because if I were mature, if I were really loving, I would just want him to do whatever he wants. And so that shame fueled more insecurity, which then made him probably pull back more and want more freedom. It's very unattractive to watch your partner be insecure and jealous. Whereas I'm always humble with jealousy. It could come back, but in my current experiences with my primary partner now, very, very different. I feel so much more secure, more kind of like Amalia 
where it's kind of a turn on to me to think about him or hear about him with other women because I feel so secure in his devotion to me, but I'm also a sub that it's a way to create that sort of safe danger. But all the while knowing like if I really, if it wasn't working for me that he would prioritize me. But Adam and me see locked in a struggle throughout where he's like, you should know you're prioritized. You're basically primary. We live together. So I think we were just locked in that that power struggle that made the jealousy intense. So yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of the dissonance, I think I was just activated on multiple fronts and not really knowing how to deal with it and not having a partner who is super supportive of that process. Although, you know, looking back, I'm sure it was a huge pain in the ass and that it was very unattractive. And I think he did try to be patient in his way a lot of the times, but we just, yeah, we weren't good in the end at, at really navigating that together. As we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we've got a lot of travel coming up in 2023. It starts right as the new year begins with the Gatlinburg ski trip hosted by Naughty Jim. That's January 17th to 22nd. And as far as I know, there are still a few spots available. Their first chalet filled up very quickly and they booked a second one. So now you have an opportunity to come along on that fun ski trip. And you want to go to their site at naughtygym.com to sign up for their list because they've got a lot more planned for 2023. We are also going to another Room 77 takeover. This time it's going to be on Isla Mujeres in Mexico. And that's going to be February 20th to 25th. They're doing a full resort takeover there. This one is fully booked. But again, you should go to their website. though. So that's room77life.com and get on their mailing list because they host kick-ass events that sell out very quickly. Yes. Then, as we mentioned, from June 9th to 16th, we're going to be in Crete with 11 other couples. And if you want to be in on that, email us at themonogamishmarriage, no spaces, at gmail.com. Looking further ahead into the summer, we expect to be going to Nadia, New Orleans. We expect that there will be another Antigua Hotel takeover with Room 77. And then into the fall, Libertine Events will be hosting the follow-up to their popular podcast of Palooza weekends with Carnival Miami. 2023. That's October 20th to 23rd in Miami, and we are already signed up to go to that. So we're super excited about all the travel coming up. And I have to say that we get notes from people all the time wanting to meet us. And the best way to do that is actually connecting at these events. So they are worthwhile going to on their own merits. But if you'd like to connect with us in a meaningful way, face-to-face, this is the best way to do that. And now, back to Kate's conversation with Rachel Krantz. One of the hard things for me as I read the book was I recognized Adam in two of my relationships. So the gaslighting side of him was very, very evident in my my previous marriage where my husband was emotionally abusive and so Mm -hmm. jealous and possessive. So the gaslighting thing was so easy to recognize in him. And that was a, a monogamous relationship. But the harder thing to recognize was the narcissism, which I see a little bit of in my current husband who is a lovely human, (laughs) but who really believes in the infallibility of his logic and can get a little bit cold 
when we get into these disagreements. And so, you know, we had a, a period of six weeks just recently where he was sure he was right. And, you know, he wanted to open our relationship more. And, you know, he was doing all the same things Adam was doing, just reassuring me that these are just your feelings. You just need time to process them. You need to do the work and you should feel very secure in our relationship. And I was feeling cornered and threatened and emotionally triggered. And, you know, you want to be this confident woman who can send your husband out, but you're also feeling like everything in my life is being threatened right now. And you pushing me in this corner is making me feel like a frightened animal. (laughs) So it was hard to see because Adam is kind of the villain in your story. But to see elements of my husband who I love reflected in the villain made me feel a little uncomfortable (laughs) at times. So I guess the question is, what do you think the line is between asking for what you want and being coercive or emotionally bullying your partner? Because, you know, there has to be a middle ground where you can ask, but you also need to respects their right to say no. So Mm, I don't know. What have you learned about walking that tightrope? Yeah, well, thanks for being so open about all that. I mean, first of all, I don't intend Adam to be the villain. I know he can be read that way, but I remind the reader several times that I think he wasn't getting up in the morning thinking, how am I going to abuse my partner? That's rarely how it works. And, And even most of the time, he was very loving. And that's why people stay in those dynamics. It's just that under stress, there's some very unhealthy behaviors that come out um, and a kind of refusal to acknowledge one's own fallibility, but very willing to acknowledge it in other people, right? And that's kind of the red flag. And it's something that I think, you know, you could see any gender express, but from what I've learned, men in relationship with women, men are going to usually, psychologists say, exhibit it more. And it makes sense because of how they've been socialized to Uh, view their own feelings as, well, not even feelings, right? To be disconnected from the feelings, but rather they represent logic and rationality and just the truth with a capital T. Whereas women are taught to kind of question their own feelings all the time and maybe even push them down in order to adhere to patriarchy or beauty standards or whatever else. And so you can have a dynamic where it feels kind of normal that the man would be asserting his rightness and the woman would be adapting to it. And one thing, you know, Kathy Labriola, who's my counselor and who's in the book a lot, that she says towards the end is like, why should men use non-monogamy as another way to reinforce the very same structures and ideas that we're trying to reject, ideally, through non-monogamy? So these ideas of there being one right way or domination over women really in some way that they're the ultimate boss that really this should be about you know yes you have to negotiate it's never just about your pleasure but if you're feeling like anxious all the time or at a place where you're not really meaningfully able to consent that should be a real concern for your partner on multi-amory they sometimes talk about the difference between rules and boundaries the idea being if you're clear on your boundaries like you can assert them but it's up to you to enforce them rather than being like it's a rule which i impose on you so for example rather than saying there's a rule that you're not allowed to fall in love with anyone else that might not be a very healthy thing however it is your right and not unloving to say it's a boundary for me that 
I don't want my primary partner to be in love with anyone else. And if that really is your boundary, then it's up to you in the end to enforce it or to offer the chance to the partner to say, you know, look, this is your right to do this, but it's a boundary for me that I can't withstand that. And so I'm going to have to leave the relationship if you if you can't change that. And then it's up to them. So I, I found that distinction helpful. And then another thing that a psychologist, Dr. Ryan Witherspoon, said to me that was helpful in reviewing some of the gaslighting transcripts and just that pattern of Adam deeming my uh, feelings not real because he felt they weren't true. So because he didn't feel they were true, like my fear that he would abandon me, that there's a discrediting that they even were real, which was maddening. And what Witherspoon said was, you know, feelings are real, period. Whether or not the beliefs underneath them are true, they're happening. So if your partner is trying to diminish that, that's a real not okay thing. And he was also saying, you know, or maybe this was the Buddhist monk, I'm forgetting which one. Yeah, this was Tashi, the Buddhist monk who you meet at the end. Someone else should never be telling you what should and shouldn't be in your feelings. It is good to not view your immediate reactions as the infallible truth with a capital T. Sometimes it is your shit to work through. But the real distinction that the monk made was like, that is very different from someone else telling you what you're feeling is wrong or you shouldn't be feeling that. That as soon as they start doing that, that is their shit. That's their delusion because they're basically saying that they're also fallible, completely subjective worldview is the truth, whereas yours is just a false thing and you should or shouldn't be feeling it. That's a big red flag. So I feel like these are things that I I think exist in many relationships, but I think a lot of people will probably read it and see in me and some of my bad behavior in the book, some resonance of themselves and also in him, perhaps some resonance of themselves or behaviors their partner is doing. And I just think like your intuition, if you're feeling uncomfortable, that is valid, period. It doesn't mean you necessarily have the right to enforce things on your husband, but if he wants to be with you, you have the right to figure out your boundaries and to stick to them. And if he's saying, no, you shouldn't be feeling jealous in the first place or nothing has changed, that's only going to further the cycle of you feeling more jealous because it discounts the validity of your feelings and also the fact that, of course, something's changed. You know, if you're further opening up your relationship, something has changed. Or if you're feeling activated, that's a sign something happened to trigger that didn't come out of thin air. So yeah, I just think it's really important to be able to communicate about these things with compassion, to have a sense of your own boundaries, even though those can shift and morph over time. And for those of us who like dominant men and our women, like to not allow that to extend to having our feelings invalidated or being pushed into situations that are kind of a different form of patriarchy in a way. Right. Yeah. Jessica Fern's book, Holly Secure, was was really helpful for us in helping to us to explain why we are experiencing these things differently. Because my husband is securely attached and I am anxiously attached. And so I guess what what the answer was for me ultimately in terms of like what's the line between coercion and just asking was like I had to decide if I agree to this what is my motivation for that and ultimately I feel like my motivation was I really do want to get stronger I do want to be more secure I do want to be more trusting more believing in you know my worth 
Um, so even though I was kind of giving in, I was sort of acquiescing to what he wanted and it felt uncomfortable. I felt ultimately at my core, it was something that I really wanted to do the work mm-hmm. on. Um, so ultimately I was doing it for me mm-hmm. and I will be stronger, even though this is hard <laughs> um, at the end. And that's, you know, that's what I want to be. So mm, I totally I get felt that. like that's the line, but, but there were some moments when I felt kind of <laughs> pushed over the line in uncomfortable ways. Mm-hmm. Another thing you said in the book was um, you talked about your casual encounters. And I'm going to quote you here. You said, after a decade of being treated like girlfriend material, I was now being treated by men as if I was little more than an amusing pit stop on the highway to arriving at respectable woman town, as if casual sex was all I wanted. And I thought, again, it was kind of painting open relationships in an almost stereotypically negative way. And I found myself wanting to jump in and defend non-monogamy and be like, but I have wonderful friends and I've made all these great connections. And so I was kind of wanting to, you know, to speak to the audience hearing this and, and say, it's not always like that. It's not always transactional and cheap. So I wonder, do you still feel this way um, about these open relationships? Or was there something about your view of yourself at the time, or your approach to non-monogamy during that period that attracted that kind of energy and that kind of relationship? What I'm referring to in that part of the book is the men I was dating who all identified as single and not non-monogamous. So this was not people I would encounter in the lifestyle later who I have an immense amount of respect for, and I, I didn't feel those experiences, though casual, were not empty to me. I'm talking about your standard fuckboy, like your standard dude who's just dating and often non-monogamously, but doesn't call it that and is just kind of like, all right, might have a couple people going on, but you don't know, or views an openly non-monogamous woman as just a fun time, but not someone they would invest feelings in. Yeah, that's not at all a reflection on my feelings about the non-monogamous community, but rather I wanted to point out how, you know, and I do point out how a lot of people who think they're not non-monogamous and who identify as like single or just dating are practicing non-monogamy. It's just the difference is it's not consensual and above board. And there's like a lot of don't ask, don't tell or overlap or whatever. And those men were the ones where it was the most harmful usually, or the most like my feelings were discarded in a way that was new to me as someone who didn't hook up before much and who had just kind of had boyfriends. I found it harder to attach and have someone I wanted to date attached to me. And I do think A lot of that is also that I was so insecure in my primary relationship, which was driving me to seek out my other relationships as something that might help override my jealousy or anxiety, or that would make it worth it, you know, make it even, make it worth it for me, or that would spark Adam's kink or his jealousy so that he would be kind of reignited in his passion for me. And that's not a good starting place, you know, it's no surprised that I felt used by people if I was on some level approaching it with a consumerist mentality myself of what can they give me, right? Even if only subconsciously so. 
So I heard you say on the Normalizing Non-Monogamy podcast, which is where I first heard about your book, that you are now three years into a relationship with someone new who you've been non-monogamous with, although the pandemic kind of interrupted that. So what are some of the key differences between how you and Adam approached your open relationship and how you are now organizing your relationships? What makes it work for you now in a way that it didn't work for you before? Well, you meet Teo towards the end of the book, and that's still who I'm spending the majority of my time with, building a life with. I think one difference is that I came into it the one who had experience with non-monogamy, whereas for him it was new. He's also much less non-monogamously inclined than Adam was, so I think it's just a much less challenging situation. You know, he's gone on dates We've gone to a play party together. It's always very exciting to me. But so far, he hasn't like had another girlfriend. So I think one reason it's a lot easier is just that he hasn't exercised his privileges towards that, whereas I have. So it's just a very different dynamic. But I think also, like I was talking about, part of the reason I'm so excited about the idea of him with other people is because I feel so securely attached and so safe and because we have very good communication around jealousy when it arises on his side. It just helps to have someone who doesn't claim they're above jealousy, but rather can experience it themselves. And it's much easier for me to see what what did I want to hear in those situations? What did I need? And to kind of offer that, but also say, but what would be best for you? Because it's not going to be the same. So for example... Some of the things that I have wanted in the past or that I wanted with Adam are similar to what he likes, but also some of it is different. Like that he, when I come back from a date, would prefer some space at first. And it doesn't mean he's mad at me. He just needs some time to kind of warm back up and adjust. And so just getting really specific about like, what is best for you? Or if I'm going to have a date with someone or I want to plan a trip, when would you like to hear about that? Like that was one thing I remember I was an issue for me of that I often felt like triggered whenever Adam would bring something up because it felt like it could spring on me at any moment that things could change. So I felt like, oh yeah, that would be helpful if I knew like if there's some sort of container he would like for those conversations or a certain time of day even. So just really getting into the nitty gritty of like what would help you the most and to feel like it's a, a negotiation a win-win rather than a a lose-lose or something like that. Yeah. But I I do think obviously, again, it's, it's a very different situation and who knows, like who knows how it's going to be when he does have another girlfriend. If he does, I'm sure it'll be more challenging, but I also have a lot of faith that it's going to be a lot better than it was with Adam just because it's, it's such a different scenario. Yeah. I wonder if because he is less non-monogamously inclined, if you feel maybe more ease about it because it's not being foisted on you, it feels more like it's a choice for Mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you talk about the, um, you know, the rituals after a date and trying to figure out what is everyone comfortable with. And that's so important, but it's kind of a trial and error sort of thing, especially for new territory. I remember after my husband came home from his first separate date, I, as a person who feels in control by having all the information, said, tell me everything. Tell me every detail. Like I I FaceTimed him immediately after she left. (laughs) I said, tell me everything because you'll forget it tomorrow. And then I deeply regretted (laughs) 
<laughs> asking for that because I found, no, that didn't make me feel more in control. That actually made me insane. <laughs> so, so yeah, trying to figure out like, what do I need? I, I don't even know what I need. And maybe what I think I need is actually going to hurt me. You know, that's where this can get so complicated. And I guess where you just need to give yourself some grace and your partner some grace. So I'm glad you found that with with your new person. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And this might be, you know, retracing some ground we've already covered. But if you were to give one caution, one thing to avoid for people who are newly entering the lifestyle, however that looks for them, what would you tell them? What have you learned from your experience? Oh, man, so much. But um, I mean, one thing is I really would suggest that you not forego counseling or therapy. I think it really, really is important and helpful to have that support. Also some form of community. Um, So whether it's a lifestyle community or even a Facebook group somewhere where you have peers who get it, who also have some sense of best practices so that if you're not sure, is this just my shit or is this really not okay? The way my partner is talking to me right now that you have people to ask that question to, whether it be a counselor or friends or ideally both. So those are two very, very key things. And just again, like we were mentioning that, yeah, someone else shouldn't be telling you what should and shouldn't be in your feelings. And it's not unevolved, something that should be looked down upon, but rather something to be treated with compassion and care. And if someone can't do that with you, then maybe you're not compatible. Um, So I think, yeah, that sometimes in non-monogamous communities, we can be a little bit like, oh, I never experienced jealousy or or, I want to experience compersion. And it's kind of shameful to be someone who's struggling with that. But I just think it's not. This is a really difficult thing for most people. And we have to be able to talk about it. And the talking about it will make the shame lose its power. So I think the less we beat ourselves up for feeling jealous, the less it's able to perpetuate itself. Okay, final question. Is there anything you wanted to include in the book that didn't make the final cut or that you look back on now and wish you had or had not included? Oh, what a good question. Yeah, there was a lot that didn't make the cut. I I cut like about a quarter of the book because it was so long when I wrote the first draft. There was a lot more Desire Crew, a couple other chapters going into Pam and Rich more. I mean, I wish I had included more of them and some more of my friends who are in these functional non-monogamous situations just to really counterbalance. But, you know, it was interesting to see, like, it's a very plot-driven story and to look at plot points and drama and what, you know, would keep people turning pages. Negativity bias at play, like conflict, right? Plot equals conflict. And I think moving forward, it'll be interesting to see how can people who are in happy relationships be interesting, you know, because they are interesting. It's just that not as much is happening on the surface, right? right? That was interesting to see. Yeah, I don't know. I, I still have those scraps. They might be turned into something else or turned into short stories, fictionalized. There was more Liam also. And he, I think is a really interesting part of the story. But yeah, he had to get cut down a bit. So yeah, we'll see. Well, I highly recommend your book. I love the way it's told. I like the the, the fact that you just mentioned the plot and the characters, because it really does read like a novel, like the best memoirs do. And, um, you know, you did years of journaling and even audio recordings 
means to make it as authentic as possible. So the dialogue is really words that were exchanged between you. So it's fascinating to read and I can't recommend it highly enough. So tell our listeners, where's the best place to get their hands on your book? Thank you so much. Well, you can find the book wherever books are sold, all online retailers or ask your local bookstore to order it if they don't have it. Also, there's an audio book that I narrated that's on Audible. And yeah, it's interesting. Apparently, so far, the audiobook is the top selling format, which is pretty unusual mm. and suggests that a lot of people are maybe listening to it, but don't want their partner to know they're reading it or don't want it on the bookshelf. Um, so, but I do think it's really fun to listen to because you can hear exactly how I intended, you know, jokes to land or, or beats um, in my reading it. And yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Rachel Krantz, my name. And I love hearing from people. I really appreciate it, especially my fellow non-monogamous people. The messages I've been getting have been so wonderful of other people just saying they appreciate the nuance, they appreciate the flawed depictions. I was so worried about making the community look bad that it's really, I think, heartening to see that people get it. They feel like it's nuanced and that you meet lots of different people along the way and hearing from other people who, like me, had a really problematic first experience with non-monogamy, but also came away still wanting to be non-monogamous. So it's just cool to know there's more people like that out there. Um, so yeah, I love I love hearing from people. And if you do enjoy the book, the last thing I would ask is if you can please, please, please leave some stars and a very short review on Goodreads or Amazon. It matters like way more than I thought. It's crazy. Like the, the algorithms run everything. So basically, this is going to be a book that spreads through word of mouth. Um, and that's that's one way to help get it popping up in people's searches and stuff. So yeah, even if it's just a line saying, I liked this, that really helps if you have a second to do that. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I loved because it was already so open and vulnerable. I loved hearing your voice speak your words. So I really recommend the the audiobook. It's a very kind of intimate experience. I feel like we could be friends. Oh, thank you. Yeah, me too. Hopefully, we'll get to go to Desire sometime at the same time. I'm like, hoping to get back. Yeah, with the Desire crew. I know. That would be amazing. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Monogamish Marriage Podcast. There are many ways to reach out to us if you'd like to connect. The first is by email at themonogamishmarriage at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at monogamish1 for our joint account, and we have some separate accounts as well. I am at Landon underscore Liam on Twitter and Liam underscore VS underscore time. So that's Liam versus time on Instagram. And to keep things extra complicated, I am at K Monogamish on Twitter and The Monogamish Marriage on Instagram. You can also connect with us and support us on Patreon by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Kate underscore and underscore Liam. That's patreon.com Kate and Liam. Of course, all of this stuff will be in the show notes, so you don't have to commit any of it to memory. Thank heaven. (laughs) Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Monogamish Marriage Podcast. We'll see you next time. See you next time.